This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Jose Sanchez, a naturalist trained in marine biology. Having worked as a nature guy leading ecotourism trips since 1993, Sanchez is an expert on the so-called friendly whales of San Ignacio Lagoon in the Baja California region of Mexico. Friendly whales characterizes a phenomenon involving California gray whales who've migrated some 5,000 miles from the Arctic to the calving areas in the lagoon. Then after giving birth, the mother whales not only allow humans near their babies, but bring the calves over to folks sitting in skiffs, which are small boats, allowing the calves to be touched and petted. This is uh, obviously intensely counterintuitive for those of us who understand that it's usually dangerous to get between an animal mother and her babies. And it's striking in another regard. Experts say there was whaling in the lagoon area as recently as 80 years ago. So entrusting the baby's welfare to strangers in small boats who a few decades ago wielded harpoons seems all the more remarkable. Sanchez and his family recently launched Pure Baja Travels, which specializes in excursions to San Ignacio Lagoon to commune with the friendly whales. Full disclosure, some years ago I went on two trips to the lagoon led by Sanchez, while my sister who's traveled to the lagoon numerous times and Sanchez have become friends. We'll discuss the friendly whales, the San Ignacio Lagoon, some of the history of the region, including that whaling, when I speak with Jose Sanchez in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in today's program, I'll speak briefly with Matt Shelley, the organizer of Punks for Paws, an all-day extravaganza of punk music, 14 bands by my count, happening this Saturday, November 13th at Pinellas Ale Works in St. Petersburg, with the proceeds going to Friends of Stray's Animal Shelter, which of course is also in St. Petersburg. We'll get the lowdown on Punks for Paws later in today's show. Right now, though, let's discuss California grain whales, the friendly whales in particular, with Jose Sanchez, with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Jose Sanchez on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Jose. Good morning, good morning. How are you, Duncan? Great. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. And um, we've kind of given the surprise end of the story away, uh, or at least I have, that people can touch and pet these whales. So let's work our way back up to that sort of magical finale, partly by discussing the beginning of your story. So when did nature and wildlife first become important to you? Well, since I was a very young kid, uh, we, we used to spend a lot of time in the outdoors uh, growing up, and uh, even even my 80-year-old grandma. So for years, we have uh, we have enjoyed the outdoors uh, as a family. And did you just immediately, uh, even though it was kind of a family activity, did you personally just immediately feel like a, a connection with nature and, and wildlife? Yes, yes, it was always an, an ex- uh, you know we were able to explore and and go and enjoy the, the animals and plants and and the surrounded 
surrounding areas, wildlife uh, yeah. that we had uh, as grown up. So what, what were some, in particular, some animals that during those formative years that you saw and really felt like connected with or maybe even enchanted by? It's funny, we, we always are attracted to the big loving animals and I grew up in the Yucatan Peninsula and uh, the ones we had there were manatees and as a kid I remember seeing them just swimming around the, the areas where we swam and uh, they were always a mystery and always wanted to know more about them. Yeah, well, of course, you're talking to another uh, manatee uh, big spot. So, uh, yeah, I think everybody feels pretty seduced by uh, manatees wherever you see them. So, And then can you point to a moment when you, you obviously you had family outings and grew up loving uh, nature and wildlife and manatees and other big, uh, bigger uh, critters, it sounds like. Can you point to a moment when you thought, hey, this isn't just fun to do with friends and families. I'd like to see if maybe I could make this my job. It was it was interesting. As you mentioned, I'm I'm a marine biologist trained as a marine biologist, and uh, mostly we we will do science. But uh, when out exploring and, and doing research, uh, I started to to notice that gray whales, especially, were uh, 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 they were more than a research subject. And this dates back to 1987, 1988, when when I first see gray whales. And you were them. Yeah. And what do you think back then, especially in those the, that, that late 80s period before you started leading the tours, what do you think grabbed you so much about the gray whales that kind of steered you off course in, in a sense? Because it sounds like you were heading towards kind of research and sort of the, the kind of career that would be natural for maybe a marine biologist to have. And it sounds like the whales kind of pulled you towards them. Yes, it was it was uh, in the early days of for, for the company I worked for. Uh, early days of going out and and just letting the the whales approach you and it was counterintuitive because these gray whales were known as devil fish as you know the the meanest of the whales and uh, here we are out in a small boat half the size of them and and they they just come and let you interact with them yeah they push the boat they and you know little by little i i don't think the the whales have gotten friendlier, we have uh, been less fearful of interacting with them and let them come close. Hmm. That's interesting. Why did, were they, did they carry that name before of devilfish? It was one of the few species of whales that when the whalers harpooned, they will turn back and charge towards the boat that were hurting them. So they, they, they were the most feared by the whalers. They had to be very skillful to avoid getting getting rammed and both destroyed uh, by them. So these whales, I guess, sounds like unusual amongst all those whales that were unfortunately being chased and harpooned and attacked. Basically, it seemed like to have an attitude of, hey, I'm not going down without a fight. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they were certainly, uh, and, you know, their babies were uh, also getting affected and, and harpooned. So it was a big... Uh, yeah, the they, whalers were, they just didn't like him, but he was a good moneymaker for the enterprise then. Yeah. So let's try to place this a little bit into some sort of historical context, because to me, as I mentioned in the introduction, I mean, part of what makes the friendly whale situation or phenomenon so remarkable is that it wasn't, at least by many accounts, all that long ago, relatively speaking, that that whaling was taking place. So can you put in some sort of historical context when whaling was still happening or when it, when it was happening in the lagoon at all and for how long? In, well, 
example, Charles Scammon is one of the first ones that goes and, and fishes for them, uh, hunts them in the lagoon. So you're talking the 1800s. And then as, as recently as 1938, there are records of now what the locals call the Norwegians that will come in the lagoon and that they will harpoon the whales there. So uh, some of the whales with the recent data we have and since the Frenchy whale encounters began might have been present when the last huntings were happening. And still they get relaxed and, and we're able to, to interact with them. Yeah, now to me, and I'm sure to many people listening, that is even more remarkable, even though we're already talking about a, kind of a, a singular phenomenon in many respects. But the idea that some of those whales that are in that lagoon were there when whaling was still happening. I mean, it's it's even harder to reconcile the idea that people in small boats that in that era would be wielding harpoons can come up to those whales. Some of the, again, possibly at least, some of the same whales that experienced that firsthand and have this incredibly friendly encounter. It is, it is. And and who, who knows, they, they might have, uh, they might not have a very good memory, and that could be a reason. They they just might be very forgiving, or there might be something that we still cannot understand that they get from the interaction that we have with them. Yeah, although the thing that's interesting is when or how the beginnings of that interaction happened. I'm going to ask you about that in a sec. But when you talked about the uh, may have, may have forgiven people, I, I just I'm just finishing up reading uh, Jane Goodall's new book called The Book of Hope, and she and her co-author Douglas Abrams have a series of conversations, mostly devoted to exploring, defining hope. And at one point, though, uh, Abrams brings up uh, the friendly whales of San Ignacio. And sharing the observation, I can't remember now if it's his or if he's relating someone else's observation to, to Jane Goodall. But either way, the observation is that the whales there have forgiven the humans. So I was interested when I read that, just knowing we were going to be talking this morning to, to see what your reaction to that observation is. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, these, these animals were, we, we hurt them. We we were not very kind to them. And I don't know if it's been, you know, a slow process. I don't know. I don't know how they got to the point, if that's the reason why that they're coming to the boat, uh, how they got there, how how they uh, make, you know, realize that we are not hurting them anymore. Yeah. But it's still, it feels like, and I think you've kind of alluded to this already, that there's still some sort of big unexplained gulf in there just because we can speculate that they're trusting, they're forgiving and whatever. But again, how they get there from what horrors, the ones that may still be from that period where whaling was still going on, I mean, how they turn that corner and say, I'm not going to be worried I'm not going to be fearful that I'm about to be attacked, but instead I'm going to go up and have this very friendly, nice encounter with the people in a very similar kind of boats to those when those horrors took place. I mean, that's just it's just hard to hard to think that all the way through. It is. It is. And, it, it, you know, again, it may have taken years for them to to get back to the point where they are now when. Uh, but it kind of reminds me of of animals that have been abused and animals that have been mistreated and. As they, you know, let's, let's say a, a, a dog that has been abused, and yeah. it, it will take a long time for they to regain that trust on humans, at, at least one human, you know, like they will get to trust and, and feel at ease with that one, and, and then from then on, it gets easier. Yeah. <laughs> 
some of them never recover. Right. Well, that's the thing. Animals, uh, I guess, really of all kinds are really adaptable. We do see that over and over. Although, again, this kind of shift on this kind of level with these kind of animals and what they've been through still seems quite remarkable. In fact, we're sort of exploring history of the whaling and things going on in and around the lagoon. Can you recount, there's, as I understand it, in terms of some of the history and lore um, uh, around the friendly whales in the lagoon, I guess there was a fairly powerful moment in the early 70s, I believe, when things you know, really apparently changed for and with the whales there. And I don't know if that's, uh, you know, I think with the... You're, you're probably referring to the to the incredible encounter that that Pachico Mayoral, yes, exactly, uh, and in the lagoon, yeah, uh, uh, had with the whales, and and to this point, to to the late '60s, I believe it is, uh, when his first encounter happened, uh, there is no like old fishermen are afraid of whales, and when they when they they are fishing, and they see the whales getting close to the boats, they tap their boats, and if they don't go away, they get pick up anchor and, and leave. And uh, this one time, uh, for some reason, they, uh, Pachico and, and his his companion, his compadre that was fishing with, they cannot lift anchor. And uh, the whale gets close to them, and and he watches it. And the whale doesn't go away, and it doesn't destroy their boat. So that's the, the first encounter we have a record of. He goes to town and he tells people, it's like, hey, you know, I, I, I touch a girl. Oh, come on, they, they, <laughs> they're evil. They, they would have destroyed your boat. So nobody believed them. And he kept interacting with the whales uh, as time goes by. And eventually uh, the news go, go out about the, the encounter. And there is a little story written uh, for the public in, I think, the 70, 72. And that's when this whole... Uh, phenomena of the friendly whale begin. Okay. We start letting these animals get close to our boats and, and interact with us. Because I would think that if people didn't believe Pachico at first, that he would have taken other people out with him and say, look, I'm touching the whale. You have to believe me now. Right. So maybe that did happen at some point, but initially for the, for everybody to say, oh, I don't believe you, that's that's crazy or whatever, it seems like all they would have had to do initially is go out with them one day and say, oh, my gosh, he, he, this is actually happening. This is true. Right. Yeah. I, I believe it was the fear. It was the fear of why locals never, never really got into it until very recently, until the last 30 years is when... When there is more aware by the by the locals, and it's like, oh, wait, they're not they're not going to kill us. Yeah, so that, I guess that also makes me wonder, I mean, you talked about the story that was written, but it's hard to imagine, given, again, even the resistance and, and sort of uh, doubts that people had about Pachico's story, like how a... How a sort of tourist industry basically was kind of born from from this situation. So how how did that evolve um, from his experience and then people, I guess, started to see it or believe it? And then how did it go from there to where, for some number of years now, I guess maybe you say 30 or so, uh, people have made specific trips down there to, to interact with the whales? The first people to, to, to come specifically to the lagoon to do whale watching were a few boats from San Diego, and they will come travel uh, the, the the peninsula, and they will go in in San Ignacio, and they will take their own boat 
and uh, let them be uh, pampered and pushed and kissed by by the whale. And uh, so that's when that's how it started. And mm-hmm. then they, you know, then there are pictures, there are videos of people going going out and and let the whales. It was, I think, we were a toy for them. Maybe we still are. Hmm. And they will push, and you know they will use their heads. They will lift the boat, and uh, there is a reaction every time, right? The first is fear, and then it's like, oh well, this is kind of cool, and and you know then you can you can touch them. So I I think for and this is very anthropomorphic, but I think for the whales we are a toy that interacts. So they and and it's not hurting them. It hmm. has to feel good. Yeah. So they come and push the boat, and then they have these little extremities that massage them and touch them, and then when they're ready to go, they go. That's that's the one thing that is very important for, for the interactions, that you if they don't want to be with you, they, they go away. Yeah. So they all, they're always in control. They always have kind of the choice to make. Absolutely. Certainly, certainly by size, no one's going to really be uh, saying, hey, man, you're staying here and uh, you're not going anywhere. So let me let folks know who might just be tuning in. My guest is Jose Sanchez, a naturalist trained in marine biology, an expert on the friendly whales of San Ignacio Lagoon in the Baja California region of Mexico. As we're discussing, this phenomenon involves California gray whale moms not only allowing humans near their babies, but bringing the cabs, in many cases, over to people in little boats and allowing uh, the camps to be touched and petted. So if you'd like to ask uh, Jose a question about this or offer a comment, maybe if you've been down to San Ignacio Lagoon and, and have any recollection you'd like to share, that'd be great. Please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So that's interesting, this notion of us being a toy to them. Uh, because so far, at least in what I know and what I've seen, and obviously you've done and seen much, much more, but I've never I've never been aware, at least, of anything unfortunate happening. Like you say, they kind of nose up the boat and, and it's a, we're maybe viewed as a toy by them. But I don't recall anything where a boat has been uh, upended or capsized or whatever this, but maybe that has happened in some cases. It, it has happened, but it's mostly with traveling boats. Uh, and one of the big areas is that where these accidents have happened is, is a cattle area where people are just traveling and they don't look ahead and a whale surfaces and they hit them. Mm. So it's not, it's not the whale that is being aggressive towards the boat. There are accidents that, that people that are not looking, they're not, they're not, uh, they're, that there's a whale on their path and they are going too fast and they, they hurt them. Yeah, and I guess we should point out that it's um, it's pretty carefully regulated in and around the lagoon in terms of how the boats can behave and how many there can be and how close or for how long they can get to the whales. So it's not just kind of random, as I understand it. Correct, correct. And, and I think that's the other beauty of, of the lagoon is, is that there is a lot of self-regulation and they because they know that first there's there's a, a good economic reason not to hurt them because there are less whales to, to watch. And they know that uh, it's also they're in danger, the, the boat drivers. So uh, there's a specific area, only about one-fifth of the lagoon is used for whale watching. And the rest that is further in the lagoon, if you may, uh, it's it for the whales, for them. Nobody whale watches there. And, and they have a place to escape if they don't want to interact with the boat or, right. or to wait until they're ready to interact. 
Right. So, again, it's always their choice. And meanwhile, they have this big area that's kind of a refuge where if they, they're not in, inclined to be around humans or boats or whatever, they can just stay put. And if, on the other hand, they feel like, yeah, maybe I would like to go uh, interact or play with these people or do something, uh, I can just head over to that specific area. Yeah, it almost seems that, especially when the babies get older and and again this might be a little anthropomorphic but you see the moms that they're they have lost some weight and uh, babies uh, to nurse the baby he takes an incredible amount of of energy on part of the mom and when your boat gets to a certain distance and and you wait it almost seems like the mom goes yes the nanny is here so she is kind of relaxes and you can see their breathing is nor is relaxed and and the babies will come to the boat and mom is 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 aware of that interaction, and she just goes, okay, you're fine. You you can stay there for a little bit. And then when mom says, okay, it's, it's enough playtime. Come back. We have things to do. And they go. Yeah. So it's interesting that, you know, they, I, it feels like the moms can rest a little bit. Yeah, so, so if I follow you, it's not only okay with mom, which we've already established is kind of surprising and counterintuitive to begin with, just, again, given the way... Most animal moms and animal babies, the situation is do not get in between them or, you know, you're going you're gonna to regret it in a big way. So that not only right. is different, but you're saying that it's almost like a break for her, brief, but still a break nonetheless, where she can just kind of take a breather while the calves of the babies interact with the people on the, on the, on the boats. Right, right. That's that's exactly what it feels like. And, you know, again, might be a little anthropomorphic, but that's what it feels like when you're out there with them. Yeah. And uh, and just to, to pick up on that for a sec, since you've mentioned that a couple of times, Jose, I mean, giving your academic training and then before you kind of veered off into guiding tours and ecotourism and that kind of thing. Do you still, uh, sounds like you even still feel a little bit of a pang when it comes to anthropomorphic thinking because some people in the scientific field are dead set against that. And and over, over the years, there's been more and more people who I think that are also scientifically trained and inclined have embraced that and just seen that uh, within reason that that's perfectly legitimate to to have those views of what animals do and what their behavior may reflect. Yeah, I, and you know, I think the 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 reason why I'm a little careful is because still have a little bit of that scientist in there. And the other one is uh well, I'm I'm just trying to explain sometimes what's happening with the interaction. Mhm. Uh and then how to measure uh uh like for example, if if uh, we know we know that these well, it has to feel good to have this interact, right? Yeah. So it's like somebody giving you a massage. It feels good. It. Uh, but how do you measure that? And and that's I think that's when when we have to be careful about trying to explain it scientifically. Because uh, all you can really do is it sounds like all you can really do is kind of speculate. Since we, we don't really know, obviously, how uh, those whales feel at that time, but we certainly can, I think, safely say they wouldn't be hanging around and coming back you know, over and over if it wasn't pretty pretty cool and pretty pleasurable for them. Yes, yes. If they get hurt, and you know, they, I think they will go away if it feels if it feels harsh, if it feels so. Uh, sometimes it's good to go through life with a little bit of mystery. <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, especially I think when it comes to the animal world. I mean, some some mysteries, uh, despite all the speculation in the world and research, whatever, some some mysteries can't quite be uh, solved. And some sometimes that feels like that's just that's just about right. And maybe in the future we'll have a way to 
to see more scientifically and more methodically, you know, how these interactions are, are uh, being recorded. But right now, we, we just don't have it. Yeah. Maybe, it, yeah. We're learning more about languages and communication among them, which just a few years ago, uh, we did not know anything. Right. Well, I'm going to, in a moment, can ask you to maybe more specifically uh, describe like kind of a, a typical interaction in the lagoon. But one of the additional things that's notable about these whales, I think I did mention this at the opening as well, is that they migrate some 5,000 miles to get to the lagoon. Can you talk a little bit about that migration? And I mean, that's that's a pretty sizable migration as migrations go, is it not? Right, yes. And until very recently, until the early 2000s, uh, we, we thought it was, you know, 5,000 to 6,000 miles uh, at the most. And then we started to get records of animals that could travel further away than that. So they, uh, they put some, some uh, satellite tags on gray whales on the Western Pacific in, in Russia. And to our surprise, those whales started showing up here for the breeding ground. Wow. Uh, right now, there are 54 out of the, I, I believe, very few uh, gray whales in the Western Pacific, 150 something. I, I don't recall the right, the, the correct name, right, the correct number right now. Mm-hmm. But at 54, almost a third of that population has been recorded in the lagoon. Wow! So it's incredible. The trip goes over 7,500 miles, more than that. So that is an incredible migration, and they have all the different uh, dangers of a long trip like that. And the biggest uh, problem right now is getting hit by big ships. Right. So that is, it, and, and predators, and it, it is just a very long journey with lots of dangers, but they still come and, and uh, you know, have their calving and nursing lagoons. And so I guess what they're doing, whether wherever they've started that migration, which again, it's uh, longer than, than uh, I guess I realized even today, is that they're, they're usually, whatever else they're doing, they're usually feeding and really feeding heavily before they start that migration, right? Yes. The northern, the northern uh, areas for them is feeding ground. Yeah. And many of them, most of them, will go to the Arctic Sea and, and that's where they feed. But there are some that will stay and feed in, in areas like Oregon and Washington and Vancouver Island, and mm. they become resident gray whales in there, and they will migrate south. So they still they go back to those feeding grounds. So they still migrate, but they become residents of a closer location or a different location than what they began as. Yes. Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. And I and I think you know, as long as they have enough food, yeah, they're going to hang out there. And they have realized, like, well, why do I need to add another three thousand miles to my trip if right. I can stay right here? Yeah, that doesn't seem to make sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're they're too smart for that. So uh, so okay. So Jose, they've made that gigantic migration. Then they're at the lagoon. There's mating, and then there's birthing. So, with anything you want to add beyond what we've kind of touched on a little bit, uh, take us through like people go out in, in these pangas, little skiffs, outboard bo- uh, boats, and uh, so tell us about like like any given outing where someone would be, you know, a few people would be in a boat and they'd be heading out to to sea and and 
and interact with the whales. How, how does that go? So you get your uh, equipment to go out whale watching and, you know, cameras, sunglasses, hats, all of that. Get in the boat and then you travel to the whale watching area because many of the camps, even though they're they take you whale watching, they cannot whale watch in front of their camp. So you need to travel to the whale watching area. And when you get there, there's a, a person that takes, that is a controller of how many boats are in there and, and how many boats can come in or out. And so you, you check in with them and they say, okay, come on over. And then you have a limited time, an hour and a half of whale watching time as you're in there. So you, you travel, you start looking at the whales, there's a blow there, there's a blow there, there's a blow there. Most of the boat drivers that we have have been doing this for years. So depending on the activities that you want to see, you see if it's a deeper area, you see more breaching. If there's a, a more current, you see a lot more heads out of the water, which is called spy hopping in some boats. Uh, they, so you just go to different areas and see different behavior. And one of the surprising things too now is that even when you have adults and they, you know, they go on their mating and mating and mating, and it seems like they say, okay, break. And they're starting to approach the boat. And so even adults that don't have baby will come to the, to the boats and, and push them and, and let you interact a little bit. And they go back to mating. And so that, and after your hour and a half is over, uh, then you will get uh, a call from, from the controller and say, hey, uh, your boat is, your, your time's out. And what you do is you move away from the whale watching area to the shore. Uh, line of the lagoon, and then you, if people are interested, you go to see the the, the shoreline. You see the dunes. You see you go watch the the birds and the mangroves, and then you make your way back to camp. And so that that's about a, a typical uh, day. outing. Yeah, uh, yeah, outing in, in the yeah. And I guess if you're down there for that kind of thing, ordinarily you would do that kind of thing like twice in a day. So you have yeah. not, not just that one, yeah. but in our, in our trip, in our trip, it's, it's so hard to get there. It's, it's the, the least uh, communicated lagoon out of the ones where whale watching happens. That you make such an effort to make it there that going out one will not will not be be fair to you. <laughs> and and also again, they're wild animals. So maybe one outing, you will not have a whale that comes closer to your boat, close enough to you. Will see them. They're going to be there. Yeah. And, and uh, again, it's their choice. And if that day they don't feel like it, they will not come. So having only one outing, it, it is not that. And sometimes you go and they, they come every single time you go out. But, sure. Uh, you know, it is, uh, it is again, it's, it's their turf. It's right. what they want to do. They're, they're in charge, right? So whatever yeah. they want to do is uh, going to have to be okay. And, uh, and, again, anytime you're dealing with wild animals... You, you can't predict with certainty what's going to happen, and um, right. So uh, I, I need I need to add too that the boat drivers that are in the lagoon, they years of experience, lots of years of experience. Yeah. And if if you see what is going on in other areas, uh, people people will tell the driver, "Hey, I I want to touch a whale," and they will get to the point where where they they are too aggressive and that is they don't have experience driving the boat they if you look at the economic side they need the money this is the time when they will make money and if you tell that to one of the drivers and this is for the, the company that works there and you say i want to touch a wheel and i give you more money they will say no no that is not what we do here right 
That's not how it works. We are in charge. No? no? Yeah. And so that's why San Ignacio is one of the best places to interact with the whales because it is their choice. Yeah. And how long have you been leading trips uh, in, in, to or in the lagoon uh, at this point, uh, Jose? Since 96. Since 96. I started in the guiding world in 93, and in 96 is when I started uh, to do the, the trips in San Ignacio. Wow. So 25 years. It, yeah. 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 Wow. I, I was a baby. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Very precocious baby. But uh, this, this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Jose Sanchez, an expert on the friendly whales of San Ignacio Lagoon in the Baja California region of Mexico. He's been leading trips to the lagoon, as we just learned, for 25 years and recently launched his own company, uh, which you can check out online at purebajatravels.com. And again, we're in our final few moments or so, but if you'd like to ask uh, Jose a question or offer a comment, we can. Uh, you can call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So, Jose, where else, uh, uh, where else in the world are there friendly whales or, or at least similar behavior in whales that you know of? In the last few years, there have been some interactions with whales in the Patagonia, with the southern right whale. And similar behaviors, they go to coastal lagoons to have their babies. And, uh, well, first of all, we, we didn't think they, they existed until uh, anymore. Uh, they were in very low numbers. And uh, they were, they, Dr. Roger Payne uh, found the, the new breeding areas or where they were going to breed. So since then, there has been a little bit more uh, tourism there, and the, the whales are getting closer to the boats. I'm not sure to the extent of, of the interactions, yeah, but I know that they're getting closer to the boat. But otherwise... And here and there... Sorry, uh, go ahead. No, no, and, and here and there, there have been uh, humpback whales in this feeding grounds and the cousin grounds that have been showing some friendly behaviors but nothing like the gray whales of Baja California. Yeah. So really, even with a couple of those examples that you just cited of, of some, although maybe limited, overall the phenomenon is still really pretty specific to San Ignacio Lagoon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The, the, the Baja Californian lagoons are the, the place to have those kind of interactions, and, and specifically San Ignacio Lagoon. Yeah, for sure. And one of our emailers wrote in saying, call me unscientific in this regard, but if we knew how to communicate telepathically, we would uncover the secret. And then she says, great guest. So thank you for that. And um, so in our final moment or two, uh, Jose, let me ask what, I mean, since you've been doing this, leading those uh, trips for 25 years, and you've obviously seen a lot of friendly whale encounters in your day, are there one or two, like, that were in some way super unusual or striking in, uh, amongst the many, many, many that you've witnessed over all these years? I, I think my favorite one is, is Valentina. It's, it's, and it may have a different name in, in some other parts of, of the world, but uh, this, this whale had a very specific behavior, and it will come behind your boat, it will take a dive, it will go belly up and get right under your boat, and lift you up. At this point, the engines are out of the water because we know the whale and we know that what, what she's going to do. And takes lift your boat and takes you out for a little ride. And then it drops you down and it does it over and over again. And it, it is eerie because it's twice the size of your boat. 
Yeah. And and that very first time when it comes and lifts you up, everybody's nice and quiet and sitting down. And when they learn that it's just, again, maybe we're a rubber ducky, uh, they, people relax a little bit more and start to enjoy the, the ride. Yeah. So... That's that's one of the ones that I really like. Yeah, for sure. Well, we got a. I don't know how much time we're going to have left for these, but we got a couple of callers. Let me put at least one on on with you. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Jose Sanchez. Hi, how are you? Good. How about you? Question or comment oh, for Jose? We're sort of at the end of our time, unfortunately. But yeah, fire away. Good. I just want to say, uh, back in the '80s, I was lucky enough to stay in Lopez Mateo for about three months and um, got to see the gray whales about just about every day. Um, it was. It was one of the best times of my whole life, and anybody that can should go down and visit that area. It's, it's a beautiful area. Stop in La Paz if you can. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you so much for your comment. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Jose Sanchez. Yeah, so I just have one question. Do you guys ever consider that maybe the whales are just smarter than we are? Are you smarter than we are? Is that what you said? I, I said, did you ever consider that the whales are just smarter than we are? Right. I mean, we, we think intelligent means manipulating your environment, but maybe they're just happy being whales and doing what they do, and they have no need to manipulate their environment, and they're trying to interact with us because we've been cruel to them throughout time. So, I don't know. They might just be smarter than we are. I think, I think that's a reasonable theory. How about you, Jose? Yeah, yeah. Why not? Again, we, we do not understand a lot of, of their thought processes, but with newer technology and newer newer ways to, to do research. We are having, uh, we're finding out those answers. We're finding out those answers about their intelligence and, and their memory. You know, it also seems that whales act very much like elephants and that they travel these things, they stay in pods, their families, you know, all that kind of stuff. There's a, seems to me to be a relationship in, um, in the kind of, uh, uh, kind of lifestyle that they have. Yeah, there's definitely some parallels yeah. there. All right, caller, thank you so much. We're sort of at the end of our time, unfortunately, but thank you so much. I appreciate your comments. See upon you both. Stay healthy. Thanks for the good work. Thank you. Okay, Jose, I think we have reached the end of our time. We've been speaking to Jose Sanchez. His new company that he launched after a better part of a quarter century uh, doing this and working for other companies is Pure Baja Travels, and the website is purebajatravels.com, so you can find out more about Jose and and the trips that that they lead when the whales and their... their, uh, the moms and the calves are there to uh, hang out with you and get to know you and uh, be treated like uh, uh, you can be treated like a toy for uh, <laughs> for that for that outing and other things. So, Jose, thank you so much for making the time to join us today on Talking Animals. It was super fascinating, and uh, and again, it's just a, I, I continue to think it's just a remarkable phenomenon. And uh, thanks for giving us uh, some really great information and insights about it. Thank you, Duncan. You're always a pleasure. All right, take care. Thank you. Bye bye. In a moment, I'll speak with Matt Shelley about Punks for Paws, an all-day punk concert featuring 14 bands happening this Saturday, November 13th at Pinellas Ale Works, an event that raises money for Friends of Stray's Animal Shelter. We'll hear more about Punks for Paws in a moment. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a piece by one of our long-standing faves here on Talking Animals. I'm referring to the great Brian Regan with a piece not unrelated to my conversation with Jose Sanchez. Here's Brian Regan with a piece called Whale Noises in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. I saw this documentary recently on whales. This guy has dedicated his life to telling you what the whales are saying. Wow. I don't know how you'd argue with him when he turns in his report. And he just throws it down there. Well, here's what the whales are saying. Okay, thanks, Charlie. He's looking back. Here's what the whales are saying. 
Yeah, Charlie figured it out. They show how he does it. He's out on a ship. He's got a pencil, and he deciphers the whale noises as he hears them. You know, he'll hear like. He's like going, oh, okay. Oh, he's lonely. No, you're lonely. I'd like to do that for like two weeks and then turn around and find out that the door's squeaking behind you. That was Brian Regan. In today's Comedy Corner, the piece called Whale Noise is taken from his album simply entitled Live. Now it's time to speak with Matt Shelley about Punks for Paws. The day-long concert taking place this Saturday, which also serves as a fundraiser for Friends of Stray's Animal Shelter. Here's Matt Shelley on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Matt. Yep, can you hear me? Okay, sorry, I didn't have you uh, properly uh, turn on at the moment, so here we are now. So great, thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. So uh, we'll get into the details of Saturday's show in a sec, but I want to know, because it's the second edition of Punks for Paws, so tell me how the first one came about. What was the impetus? So the first one came about uh, just after some discussions with me and my wife. We had uh, moved down to Tampa from Auburn, Alabama uh, a few years prior, and I had done fun of kind of a, a similar show uh, with some friends back in Auburn to, to help out a, uh, another local humane society up there that was a no-kill no shelter, and uh, I'm really passionate about uh, animal welfare and uh, adopting as opposed to shopping for your pets. So uh, I've been playing in a band locally for a while at that time and uh, kind of got together and met a bunch of other cool bands in the area and thought, well, let's throw a, a big show and then uh, uh, try to raise some money for Friends of Strays because uh, I think Friends of Strays is a really great organization over there. And uh, The connection to Friends of Strays just came in um, from a, a previous job that I had that I, I had met um, the CEO of Friends of Strays and, and uh been working with her professionally for a bit, and then she'd moved on to Friends of Strays, and I thought it was a pretty cool little, uh, little matchup there. That's great. Was there something particular about, like, having it just be punk bands uh, for the show, or that did it just kind of evolve naturally that way, or did you kind of design it that way? Well, uh, to be completely honest, I play in punk bands. And, right. Um, my friends play in punk bands, and I, I love the, the local punk scene that we have in the Tampa Bay area, and... Um, one thing about the the bands and, and the friends that I've made in, in this uh, in this scene around here is they're all super generous and they all they all do care about the animal welfare uh, just like I do. Um, so it was kind of a natural fit to, to throw that together. And the punk community is very um, very community minded, to put it uh, as simply as possible, and just made sense to do it that way. That's great. So let's get into some of the details of Saturday's show. So when I think we've established it's this Saturday, November thirteenth, and the where, if you want to tell us that, or I can. Sure, sure. Yeah, the uh, we'll, we'll open it up at twelve o'clock. Uh, it's at Pinellas L Works on uh, First Avenue South in St. Petersburg. Um, Pinellas L Works for anybody that hasn't been there is a, a great local craft brewery. Um, they're very connected to the community, and they're also um, they have a great relationship with Friends of Strays. And also a great space for live music. So uh, the doors will open at 12. The first band will start at 1 o'clock. A band called Danger Pen, who I'm very excited to 
Tennessee. Um, and from there, it just goes uh, all day until uh, almost closing time. Uh, we got 14 bands, like I said earlier. Um, should be a great time, though. So I think it runs till what, uh, just before midnight or thereabouts? Yeah, the last band is scheduled to go on, I think, at 1045. And uh, I think Pinellas Works closes at, at midnight. So uh, that last band should finish up about 11.15, 11.30 if things move along as scheduled and with punk bands. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So, <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> for 14 so. bands of any kind, sometimes that's uh, tricky to make all the logistics run exactly on time. But, uh, but it sounds like it's going to be like just a great uh, full day of music and into the full night of music as well. Yeah, man. And, we're, all, we're all looking forward to it. we got a lot of buy-in from all the bands, and everybody's really stoked for it. So we're, we're looking for a good time, man. That's very cool. So where <clears throat> direct us to some social media pages or elsewhere where people could find out the details, especially if they're driving around and hearing this, but not able to write down everything, and and also uh, to find out like what the the cover charge is, which we can't unfortunately mention at the moment, but uh, but it's super reasonable, I will say that. And so, where where could people go to find out more about uh, Punk for Paws? Sure, we have a uh, an event page on Facebook. Uh, if you just look up Punks for Paws to the event page, you should find it. Uh, you can look up uh, just about any of the bands on the bill. Uh, have it added to their event calendars on Facebook, including Friends of Strays. Um, the band I play is called Arcane Arcade. Of course, I want to drop that one in there. So sure. feel free to check us out on uh, Instagram and Facebook, Arcane Arcade Official or Arcane Arcade FL. And you should be able to see the event page from there. That's great. Yeah, I didn't have any trouble finding various uh, sources of information when I put in uh, Punks for Paws. So Perfect. it's definitely there. And it sounds like it's just going to be a blast. And, and again, for such a great cause. And um, you can't really beat that combination, right? A full day of music and raising money for a great animal shelter. What's what's not oh, to it's like? Gonna be, it's going to be an absolute rager. And would would definitely invite everyone, even if you're just kind of sort of into the punk rock, come on out. You might find a, a band that you, you didn't know about that you, 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 you like a lot. And uh, plus, I'm a huge fan of all the bands on this bill, so it's just going to be a great time, and we're gonna we're gonna raise some money for some some dogs and some cats, man. Can't beat it. It's so cool. Well, Matt, thank you so much. Uh, great. Good luck for the show. I think it's going to be a, a barn burner. It sounds like and a lot of fun. And uh, thank you so much for making the time to join us today on Talking Animals. Duncan, thanks so much for having me on, buddy. I appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. All right. Bye. Coming up a little bit later on WNF, the music kicks back in with the back in action. Scott Elliott, who was away last week, and he is back. And uh, from noon to three, looking forward to that. And uh, just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WNF Tampa. I hope you'll join us next Wednesday for another edition of the show. I also invite you to uh, visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast. Apple Apple Podcasts are available there, too, as well as other podcast platforms. Also, links to our social media pages, etc. You can also subscribe to our newsletter to find out about our guests a couple of days beforehand and other news from the Talking Animals world. So I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. This is Talking Animals on WMNF, Tampa, Brandon, Clearwater, Largo, Wikiwachi, and beyond. My thanks again to Jose Sanchez for joining us, as well as Matt Shelley. And WMNF, Tampa, 